Well, welcome to Willow Park Church uh, this wonderful Sunday morning when we are celebrating the goodness of God and all that God has done. Now, I'm reminded of the psalmist who speaks about the fact that give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords for his love endures forever. And that psalm just continues to go on declaring God's wonder at his creation. God's wonder at the way that he brought the earth together. God's wonder at how he, he put the mighty lights in the sky and the sun and the moon to govern the day and to govern the night. Because his love endures forever. And how he rescued Israel from the Egyptians. His love endures forever. And split the Red Sea. His love endures forever. And led them through the wilderness. And caused them to be victorious. His love endures forever. And maybe you're watching this for the first time. Or maybe you're not really in faith. Or you're checking it out. I want to tell you that as Christians, we believe in a God whose love is real. A God who cares about all of us. A God that is in control. A God that is faithful. A God that you can trust and lean on. And that he's always with you. A God that is sovereign. The sovereign Lord. And his kingdom, an invisible kingdom, but a kingdom of God's love that will last forever from generation to generation. And when you discover faith and you discover Jesus, that's what happens. You step into that relationship with God where you know that he's love. And that is that it all comes through the work of the cross. It comes through acknowledging that Christ paid the ultimate price upon the cross to give us life, to give us purpose, to give us a direction. It is truly wonderful. So I want to encourage you as you join this morning to prepare your heart, to listen to the voice of the Spirit. After the worship, we will be taking communion together. And as we take communion, it may be an opportunity for you, yes, to surrender your life to follow Jesus Christ. To make that change that you need to make in 2021. Or maybe you've logged on and you've been wandering in your faith. And after the worship and we come to communion, maybe that's a time for you to get right with God completely. And as you get right with God and God comes close to you, that he will be with you. That he will guide you. That he will lead you. It's wonderful. So as we begin our service, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love and we thank you for the love of God that sent Jesus. And as we step in to today's service, we pray that you will bless, that you will encourage, that you will be with us and draw us Close to yourself, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Aren't you glad that Jesus is the Lord over all the nations? Particularly when we experience the news that we have about what has been taking place 
and what we saw in America, it, it, it affects you. You start to wonder. It's a little disconcerting. We understand and it's, it's shocking to see. But as we are studying Daniel, we know that there is one God who is in control over all the nations. That helps me. And as we worship now, step into it and let the Lord comfort you at this time. Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Zoe, and it is such a joy to be leading you today in worship. And um, I'm so thankful that we still get to gather together, uh, regardless of how our world is right now. So uh, I'm going to pray and invite Jesus to be with us, and um, yeah, we can worship together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your presence is still tangible and real and with us, regardless of how our world looks right now. Um, that despite the fear and the confusion, um, that we can still come to you and uh, know that we are comforted and looked after. Um, what a joy and what a gift. Um, we love you and I pray that you are pleased with our worship this morning. Take my place That you bear my 
beautiful truth that in my weakness your strength comes out of me that when we feel like we are not enough in this cruel and broken world it doesn't matter because you've given us what we need you are in us father i pray that the message today would um be said with the right words father that it would come from you and not from who's speaking it um that people would have open hearts and open ears to hear what you have to say to them this morning. We love you. Amen. Thank you, Zoe. Thanks for leading us. We're really grateful. And to be able to sit in the presence of the Lord. And we're going to pause now. And it's my, it really is my favorite time as we travel through these online services to pause and to take communion. So hopefully you've got your bread and your wine or juice and you're sat there ready. So let's pray together. Can I encourage you now to just give your whole life over to Christ? Examine yourself, surrender the past week, surrender your fears, your anxieties, your worries. He went all the way to the cross so that we needn't be anxious of anything. That God is with us. And the night in which the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. Saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this moment... Take a moment to remember the cross, to remember Christ's journey, to remember the sacrifice, and remember that he was broken so that we may be healed. The body of Christ broken for you. We thank you, Lord, for the bread. Thank you that you are the bread of life. And we thank you that you paid the price for our sins. In like manner, or in the same way, he picked up the wine on that table. And as his friends were there, his disciples were gathered. He poured it out in that cup. And he said, this is my blood. Which is shed for you. Takes away the sins of the world. And so we're reminded that we are, as human beings, a failed project. We are broken. We are in need of forgiveness and we're in need of hope. But I am redeemed. I am purchased back. I am made whole. I am forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the blood that was shed for us upon the cross. 
and its power to change my heart and to bring me into salvation. The blood of Christ. It's so good to take that moment and to hand everything over to Christ and ask him to come to us and minister to us. Amen. Well, we are going to uh, watch Willow One News right now. So you can catch up on all the exciting things that are happening. So much good stuff taking place. I am absolutely thrilled at our church, at the momentum, as we step into 21 days of prayer, as we believe God, it's very exciting. And this is like a time for us to pray, isn't it? Willow One News. Hello, Willow Park Church. My name is Courtney. Thank you for joining us at Church Online. Here is your family news. Today is the first day of 21 days of prayer. This is an opportunity for us individually and as a church family to seek God intentionally in the new year. There are a few ways you can get involved. First, you can sign up for our daily prayer devotional emails. Second, join us for an online prayer gathering. We will have one every morning at 7 a.m. and every evening at 7 p.m. Monday through Saturday. You can also submit your prayer request to us on our website so we can pray for you. Learn more about all of these things at willowparkchurch.com slash 21 days. The Marriage Course is a series of seven sessions designed to help married couples invest in their relationship and build a strong marriage. It's coming to Willow Park Church at the end of January. The course will be hosted by some of our own pastors and leaders, and each session is like a date night for you and your spouse. If you're interested in learning more, please sign up on our website at willowparkchurch.com marriage. We have some new groups starting this week. Deeper is a Bible study for women, and it happens online every Monday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Gather is another group for women that meets online every Thursday morning from 9.30 to 11 a.m. We are also starting a new divorce care support group, which runs for 13 weeks, and they meet Monday nights at 6.30 p.m. in the Fireside Room at Willow Park Church at 33. For more information on all of these, visit our website at willowparkchurch.com events. We are so thankful for all of you that joined us over the Christmas season, and we wanted to share a little video of our Christmas Eve drive-in services. Take a look. That's all for your family news. Thanks and enjoy your service. Well, good morning, everybody. It is great that you have joined us this morning, and uh, we're excited that you've put some time aside to join us, listen to the Word of God, 
And I hope that you're getting fully involved in the 21 days of prayer. We've already been talking about that, and uh, you had your devotion this morning. And uh, it'd be great to see you over the next few weeks as we do a, a morning and an evening uh, prayer time together. You can join us online for that. And thank you as well for the South Art Project. They have put together our latest background, and the theme you can see is in it and not of it. There is some symbolism there, and uh, you, can, uh, you can have a little closer look at that and try and figure it out. I've just been spending a couple of minutes thinking about it, and I think I, think I got it, but you can, uh, you can enjoy that. But thank you to the South Art Project for it's a beautiful painting, and I just love the strength and the imagery of Jesus uh, being a lion, but also the lion in, uh, in Daniel as well, as we study this incredible book. And then finally, just before I jump into the scriptures, you can start turning to Daniel as I, as I speak. But we have uh, Marriage Alpha starting in a couple of weeks. Uh, we've already had almost 100 couples interested in uh, doing this course that have signed up for more information. And, and so it's already proving to be of tremendous uh, intrigue and interest to people. And if you are interested in taking this, uh, this tune-up course, it is not a course uh, just for those who are, are struggling. It's just with any, anything that you're really interested in, you spend time on. And so as married couples, we should be spending time on improving our marriages. And so if you're interested in the Marriage Alpha course, you can go online and you can find out some more information, sign up for more information. And uh, this week we'll be sending out how to register and, uh, and it's all online and it's a, just a great, great course. All right, Daniel chapter 1. The theme of Daniel as we look at this incredible book is in it, not of it. In it, not of it. And last week uh, I started by asking this question, how do we live and thrive in our post-Christian culture? If you've not listened to last week's message... It's, uh, it's, it's a real, very quick, deep dive into post-Christian culture. What does that mean? Uh, how, why do I say that we're living in it? What does it affect us? How does it affect us? What is our response to it? But essentially, the, the idea is this, that culture has accelerated away from God-given ideals, God-given Christian thought. Culture has accelerated away from that, and we have to respond to that. We have to think about, as Christians and as a church, how do we respond to our culture? So we can either withdraw through fear and separate ourselves and build our own subcultures, or we can step in and become just like the world and be assimilated, if you like, like Star Trek and the Borg, um, be assimilated in where there's no real difference between Christianity and the culture around us. There's a third way, a better way, and that is where Daniel steps in because Daniel is the best book, arguably, in the Bible to show us how do we live in a post-Christian culture. And last week we used uh, Paul in Acts chapter 17 when he walked into the center of Athens and was surrounded by idols and he used, he contextualized the gospel. And so what we're going to do today is we're now going to step into Babylon. We're going to step into this city and you're going to see how Babylon is 
us that Babylon is the post-Christian culture that we are facing. And also then we're going to look at, we're going to start seeing how we as Christians can thrive and live in this really unusual time. So let's jump straight in. Daniel chapter 1. Uh, hopefully you've had plenty of time to find it by now because it's one of those tricky books to, uh, to find. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Okay, let's just pause there. What's, what's going on here? Well, first of all, this book is set in 6th century BC in Neo-Babylonia, and, you can, uh, and this is basically modern-day Iraq. That's where uh, Babylon is situated. And Babylon at that time was the pinnacle of civilization. So you've got an artist impression here, obviously, of what Babylon looked like. It was a massive, massive city. It was by far the largest city of that time. It stretched some 25, uh, sorry, 2,500 acres. The walls, and this is where this picture doesn't do a good job because you can see people and, and the scale is actually not right because the walls, archaeologists tell us, were 80 foot thick, 320 foot high, and 90 kilometers in circumference Long. So just to put that into perspective, if you travel from the west, uh, from the Kelowna Bridge to Oliver, that's roughly the length of the walls, but in circumference around the city. 80 foot thick is incredible. We used to live in Wales, and it was quite common uh, to visit cottages where the cottages' uh, walls were three foot thick, and then it's incredibly thick. Um, and so, and then 320 foot high is, is really the, the astounding one. Think about Landmark 6. Think about Landmark 6. Landmark 6 is 266 foot high. So these walls were 320, a third again, higher all the way around this city. It was a sight to behold. There was idols everywhere. And you can see in the center here this well-known gate, uh, the gate of Ishtar. And, and it was covered in imageries of idols, in particular the idol of war and sex. It was a brutal, influential, powerful city and civilization led by an incredible leader who arguably, historians say, was the most powerful leader in the world at that Time and they were highly devoted to their gods. So the scripture says this In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And then later on it says, With some of the vessels of the house of God, he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So what's happening here is actually really, really important to note. Because what this is saying is, is when, when the Babylonians came into another city and besieged it, they would take anything that represented the God of the people they were seizing and put it into their own temple. This was the height of, uh, uh, it was a terrible, terrible thing to experience. Because what the Babylonians are saying is that your God is not as powerful as our God's. 
that we don't need your God. It's open rebellion against God. And so it was a horrifying thing to experience because obviously the people of God at that time revered God and it was their most important or theoretically was the most important thing they had in their lives. And the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar came and took their God and said, your God is not as powerful as ours. And put it into the temple. This was a shameful, shameful act. Babylon is first mentioned in Genesis in chapter 11, the the famous tower of Babylon. And you can, again, this artist's impression, it was a massive tower. And at that point, God said some quite remarkable things about uh, the Tower of Babel and the people that built it. And really what this tower represented and what the Babylonian civilization represented all through the scriptures is this idea that we can do life without God. We don't need God. We don't need him to to function. We're superior. We can do our own thing. It was open rebellion against God. And this theme, whenever you read about Babylon or the Babylonians or Babel in the scriptures, it's really representative. It's, it's like now a worldview. It's synonymous with the idea of open rebellion against God. I don't need God. I am sufficient in and of myself. So Babylon is no longer a civilization as much as it is now a worldview as far as the scripture is concerned, a paradigm. It's a way of living this life without God. And so that is why it is, and Bible scholars show this through the scriptures as well as various commentaries, and we are safe in saying this, that the Western post-Christian world that we live on, live in, is Babylon. We are Babylon. This is where we live. And you can actually see as you start pulling apart what the civilization represented and its worldview and its mindset that there's so many connections to the culture that we live in. So the Western post-Christian world is Babylon. So now, in our culture, children are sacrificed on the altar of convenience, just like in Babylon. There's allegiance to gods of money and sex and influence now, just like in Babylon. There's hostility towards Christians, the people of God now, just like there was in Babylon. The essence and the the mantra, if you like, of Babylon at the time is, if it feels good, do it. How similar is that to where we're at today? One of the books that I uh, recommend uh, last week, and I put it in the email this last week, um, to, 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 if for those of you who want to read a little bit more about post-Christian culture, is from a pastor called Mark Sayers, and he's in Melbourne in Australia, and he has an amazing insight, a prophetic insight, I believe, into what our world, our post-Christian world, actually looks like and how it thinks. So if you want to jump in, I really rep- uh, recommend that book to you. But one of the things that he says is in our post-Christian culture, the highest good is individual freedom. Happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. This idea that it's about me. It's about what I think. And as I said last week, we in this post-Christian culture, this culture of Babylon, if you like, the, the thought is that we don't bend into society. Society bends into us, into me. In the beginning, me. 
And, and the way that we speak, the way that we educate, the way that sometimes we bring our children up, the way that we consider life actually represents that thought. And just like Babylon, the walls are long, they are deep, and they are high around our culture, not physically, but metaphorically, the walls are hard to overcome because people's God of freedom is set. And so we have this incredible city. And Babylon, the Babylonians, would descend upon other cities, other cultures, and devour them. They were incredible in their ferocity and their brutal acts. They would come to a city just like they did with Israel and Jerusalem, and they would overcome it. They would take people into exile. What does that mean? It means, well, basically, if you weren't murdered or sold as slaves, you would be kidnapped. You would have your whole civilization overcome with the thought of the Babylonians, the mindset of the Babylonians, the worldview of the Babylonians. You would be taken to Babylon and you would be treated as slaves and treated as such throughout their whole civilization. And taking the gods from our temples, from the temples of the people of God, and placing it into their own temples is just saying, your God is nothing. Your God has no place in our lives. Wow. That is what we're looking at. When we think about Babylon, when we think about Daniel and the next few chapters as we work through this, that is the context in which Daniel has been called to live. And he has a choice. He either leans in and becomes like Babylon, or he leans out and separates himself from Babylon. But as I said, Daniel found another way. So let's just look at what the king Nebuchadnezzar would do once, in this particular circumstance, once people were brought into exile. He had a specific order, and he said this, The king commanded Aphanes, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel. Now notice who these people were. The king was choosing a particular type of person both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So the king is making a particular request. Yes, they brought Israel uh, under kind of submission. Yes, Israel are now in exile. And there's a lot that I could share about what exile means for the nation. But we are centering in on a particular small group that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had his focus on. And it is the young people, the youth. So Daniel and his friends, as we're going to see in a minute, were likely aged between 13 and 16 years old. These are young, young people. They would have been taken from their comfortable, very comfortable homes, nobility, royal family, youths without blemish. They were good-looking kids. They, they were kind of, as far as the Babylonians were concerned, they were good to look at. They were influential. And just like now, this is why we say, this is Babylon. Looks and influence are important. They have high value. They have high value in Babylon now. They have high value then. And the king zeroes in on a particular group 
of young people. And then look what he does next. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. We're going to talk more about this next week in detail. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Those four young people, aged between 13 and 16, had very Hebrew names. Their names represented certain aspects of the grace and the love of God, the same God that we worship. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. It's really important, this scripture, because what it's telling us is that the king has his focus on the youth. Just remember that. Babylon has its focus on the youth, a particular type of youth. And he's focusing in on them, and then he's doing something very particular with them. He's re-educating them, he's changing their name, and he's therefore changing their worldview. So Isaiah tells us in referring to this period of time that in all likelihood, and and history tells us this as well, that if you were taken into exile by Babylon, one of the first things that they were going to do is make you a eunuch. In other words, these young men were likely castrated. Why? Because they wanted to cut off their future. They wanted to make sure that their future was controlled. Why was their name changed? Because they wanted to change their identity. They wanted to take away that which was godly and replace it with that which is Babylonian. They took these good-looking kids and changed their worldview. They changed their worldview, how? By education. Not just any education, but a particular kind of education that we read here in the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Who were the Chaldeans? Well, that education meant this, is that those four good-looking, kind of uh, highly intelligent, knowledgeable young men aged between 13 and 16 were taken from their homes, taken to a city they did not know, started hearing a language that they did not understand, and were taken to a school that essentially taught them witchcraft and, 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 and paganism and, the, and, the, and magic. This was now their reality. Can you imagine the disruption that they must have felt in their lives? This would have been the equivalent for us in the West, especially in North America, is for us to be invaded in Kelowna in 2021, and then for our kids to be taken from our homes and taken away to a different place where they speak a different language, that they were separated from their families, isolated, and then placed into a satanic school. That is actually the reality of what Daniel and his friends were experiencing because Nebuchadnezzar had a long-term view. He knew if he could re-educate these uh, young men, he could then send them out as missionaries as the new Babylonia with the new mindset, the new worldview. It's really interesting as you look through the scriptures, there are particular times where the world, the culture goes after the young. If you look, think back, you can think about Moses, and I'm actually reading uh, Genesis right now as part of my, uh, of my reading through the Bible in the year, and, and this, this whole generation, the Moses generation wiped out. 
You can jump ahead and you can look at the Jesus generation. The time when Jesus was born, you have a leader, a culture that is wiping out the young people. And then you look at Daniel's generation. Again, they're taking on and they're wiping out the idea of God within a whole generation of young people. Friends, we live in Babylon. Parents, we live in Babylon. Our kids are being taken into exile. They're being re-educated. Now, you might think this is really melodramatic, but actually just a quick glance at what is happening in our culture and in our society right now, that is exactly what is happening. Our kids are being re-educated to be like Babylon, to think like Babylon, to have that self-focus, to have that idea that they are the center, that the society bends into them, they do not bend into society, that their new God is the God of freedom, their new God is the God of self-expression, that culture and society exist so that they can express themselves. And this re-education happens subtly because all they need to do in order to be educated in our culture is to wake up in the morning. It is slow. You see, our enemy has a long-term plan, and he's not in a rush. It is a slow, subtle, but insidious re-education. And all they need to do is wake up in the morning and step into this culture and be constantly re-educated. When they look at their phones, when they go to school, when they turn the TV on, when they look at marketing, when they just exist through no fault of their own, They are absorbed and pulled in to modern-day Babylon. David Brooks, a well-known New York Times uh, writer and commentator, said this in one of his columns. They were, and again, this quote is from Mark Sayers' book, Disappearing Church. They are sent, this is young people, sent off into this world with the theology, theo, God, this idea of God, this study of God ringing in their ears, If you sample some of the commencement addresses being broadcast on C-SPAN these days, you see that many graduates are told to follow your passion. Notice the pronouns. Chart your own course. March to the beat of your own drummer. Follow your dreams and find yourself. This is the litany of expressive individualism. It's the God of freedom. It's the God of freedom. And our young people are being educated in this. And then when they have children, they will be educated in this. It is the way of Babylon. It is the way of Babylon. Their identities are changed. The families are disrupted. Sexual permissiveness is encouraged. And then they are sent out as missionaries under the banner of this is good. This is good. So let's just take a breath. There's a lot there. It's pretty heavy stuff. What we've done is we've gone just like Paul and we've entered Athens, we've entered Babylon and we've looked around and we've looked at the idols and we've considered what does this have to do with us and we've seen that Babylon has so many, it it resonates with the culture that we live in and it resonates with the way that our kids are being re-educated. So what does this mean for us though? So now we put ourselves into the mindset that Daniel had. The first thing that is really important to note, and if you are taking notes, then you need to write this down, is to be a follower of Jesus is to be a stranger in an exile. It's part of the job. It's part of our calling. And for us to expect the world to be any different is naive on our part, and it really isn't part of our calling. For us to be a true follower of Jesus means that we're going to live in a culture that is diametrically opposed to everything we believe in. 
And so, yes, we can get, we can get upset, and that's, there's a time for that. We can feel sorrow. There is certainly a time for that. We can feel burden, absolutely, especially when we come to pray. We can feel the heaviness. It can cause us despair sometimes. But we must always bounce back into the reality of this. That is our calling. That, friends, we are strangers and exiles. And all through the scripture you will see, even into the New Testament, this reference that if you are a Jesus follower, then you are called to be strangers and exiles in a culture that is widely, wildly different than our citizenship that is found in heaven. Look what the writer in Hebrews says when he's referring to the heroes of faith, as it were. He says, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised. They never saw the reality of the promises that they felt in their heart. But having seen them inside and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in earth. They acknowledged that they do not belong. Why is this reality? You can read about it in First Peter. You can see references to us being aliens, just like Sting used to, used to sing, aliens in a foreign land. That is the reality of Christianity. And we can get awfully uptight about it, or we can accept it as part of the call. Not accept it so that we just relax and don't do anything about it, but accept it in the reality that God is in control, as, Paul, as Phil has already mentioned earlier on. And we're going to see that in just a second. Why are we called to be exiles and strangers? It's very, very simple, friends. Because we serve a king who came as an exile and a stranger. He came, he left the royalty of heaven. He left all that heaven had for him, the scripture said, and came and lived to be part of a culture and a world that was so opposite to kingdom and heavenly values. Why did he do that? Because he loved us. He loved us and was passionate towards us, that this was part of God's plan to redeem us and rescue us from that culture. He came and he lived, and the scripture says that we don't serve some far-off high priest that can't understand what we're going through. He lived as an exile and a stranger. And he died as an exile and a stranger so that he took that punishment that you and I truly deserve. And the sin and the shame died with him so that we could live as citizens in heaven and bring heaven on earth as it is in heaven right now. Thy kingdom come. We are the kingdom. We are his representatives. That is our calling. And it's time, just like Jesus, to step into this culture, to step into this alien land, and to represent him well, not to withdraw, to be in it and not of it. But then the question becomes, how do we do that? So if you were listening to some of the sermons in the summer, we were looking at the disciplines, the habits of Jesus that we could incorporate into our own lives, habits that are Very, very practical as followers of Jesus. And you're going to see over the next few weeks how these habits are actually intrinsic to us as exiles and strangers in the land. Where our kids are being re-educated. And what do we do about that? And how do we function and thrive and live in the midst of that? But what Daniel had was a separate kind of set of instructions. And you can find them in Jeremiah. And Daniel actually refers to Jeremiah later on in the book. But you can see that this prophecy from Jeremiah about this time in Israel's history is very, very specific about how Daniel should live. And so Daniel would know this prophecy, and he started living this out. 
And so this is, I referred to it very briefly last week, but I'm going to show you just really quickly some ways that you and I, as a kind of broad umbrella over what our life should look like before we get into the nitty-gritty, generally speaking, how should we live in this post-Christian Babylonian culture? How do we represent Jesus well? How do we not withdraw through fear? How do we not get absorbed, arguably also through fear, and become just like them? How do we live in it and not of it like Jesus would want us and how Jesus has called us to be? So the scripture, and I'd love for you to maybe even learn this scripture, is in Jeremiah 29. I'm going to go pretty quickly through it uh, because it just highlights some specific instructions as to how we should live. So Jeremiah is addressing life in exile. And the first thing he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat of their produce. First thing Jeremiah is telling Daniel and telling us and telling the people of God is this, is is be involved. Don't withdraw. Get involved. Integrate. Work hard. Shoulder to shoulder with the people who have very different viewpoints from us. That we should not be withdrawing into our metaphorical caves and subcultures. And again, I said last week, there's nothing wrong with Christian education and Christian music and, and Christian this and Christian. Nothing wrong with those at all. They are beautiful, wonderful gifts of grace to us. But if we are using them to somehow segregate ourselves and isolate and hide through fear, then we need to wonder, we need to ask the question, is this the calling that God has given to us? And let me help you. No, it isn't. Our calling is to build houses. Our calling is to live in them, to plant gardens and eat their produce. In other words, get shoulder to shoulder. We should be the hardest working, most reliable, positive people in our workplaces. And that is difficult. That is difficult. You know, I was chatting last night with my, my son Luke, and we were talking about calling and jobs, and we were, calling about, we were asking the question whether or not calling is your job. Um, you know, does job equal calling? And, you know, and we threw around this idea that maybe calling is more encompassing than that. Maybe it's possible for you to live and work, sorry, for you to work somewhere that actually is really hard to see where the idea of calling and Christianity is. So does that mean your job is not your calling? Well, yes and no. We are called to work hard, be positive, point people to Jesus, to see people come to know Jesus, to be examples of Jesus. That's our calling. And you can do that within any myriad and number of different jobs. If that job's not blatantly ungodly and sinful, then maybe it's okay. And maybe that God has called you to be in that place so that you can live out your calling, just like Jeremiah is suggesting to the exiles in the middle of Babylon right here. So be the hardest working, most reliable, positive person in your particular world, the circle that God has placed you in. And then Jeremiah carries on. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. This is kind of unusual language, you know, taking a wife. That's obviously not language that we, we use because that is wildly inappropriate in, in so many different ways. But what Jeremiah is saying here is build strong, lead strong families. 
that I, as a husband and as a dad, have a responsibility to, to, to do everything I can to build a strong family. My wife, Sarah, has exactly the same responsibility. And Jeremiah is saying, this is culture changing. This is culture changing. This is a way of coming shoulder to shoulder into Babylon and seeing change. It's to build and lead strong families. That then we are sending out missionaries, if you like, from Jesus thinking, Jesus following, Christian homes into places where ultimately they are going to be surrounded by Babylon. It's a guarantee. No matter how much we protect them now, there will come a time where they will go into Babylon. Let's do everything we can to build strong families. Educate them in an alternative kingdom, the kingdom where King Jesus is ruling. To be proactive in that way. To look for ways that we can train and show our children and then build and safeguard and pray for strong, strong families. That, Jeremiah is saying, so first of all, we are to integrate and work hard. Now we're to build strong families. And what's, a, what's another one? This is, I've quoted this many, many times, but seek the welfare. This word welfare can mean shalom, peace, prosperity, blessing, favor of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Be a great neighbor. Be a great community member. Be a great uh, city member. Somebody who is leaning into the city and looking for ways that Kelowna, in our context, can grow and prosper. Not just financially, but in peace. What are some simple ways that we, as Jesus-following people in the middle of Babylon, can say there is a better way? Well, it's by going shoulder to shoulder and looking for ways that we can serve and help. That we can see, rather than just distancing ourselves, but stepping into. It was such a blessing over Christmas to see how um, the, the stockings giveaway blessed so many different places in this city. And there's a loud cry quite often that, um, that, you know, that churches shouldn't be open, that churches should be closed. And, and even this week, I was reading comments, people just vehement against Christianity and churches. But the reality is, is that if that actually did happen, the effect that that would have on this city is huge. Because there are so many parachurch, Christian-based organizations serving the poor and the homeless and the disenfranchised and the broken and the hurting in our city. This is a way that we can seek the welfare. So maybe in 2021, we should be asking ourselves the question, how do we step into that more? How do we look for ways that we can seek the welfare of our city? So rather than just sitting back saying, well, that's somebody else's job, or maybe writing a check, as good as that is, what is a way that you can serve? And maybe it's really simple. Maybe it's shoveling your neighbor's driveway. Maybe it's picking up garbage when you see it as you walk past. Maybe it's doing something and open our eyes in a way that we've not thought about before, where we're contributing to the shalom of our city. So much that I could say about that. But let's move on to the next one. Pray. Pray. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. This, to an Israelite, would have been horrifying. Pray for Babylon. Pray for its blessing. Pray for its prosperity. That was crazy talk for the Israelites at that point. 
But Daniel, as you will see as we read through and study Daniel, took these instructions from Jeremiah to heart. And that included praying consistently and continually on behalf of the city to the God that he worshipped. Not the Babylonian God, but his God. There's this incredible scripture in Ezekiel, and it says this, the prophet says on behalf of God, I looked for anyone to repair the wall, seek the welfare of the city, in other words, and stand in the gap for me on behalf of the land, so I wouldn't have to destroy it. But I couldn't find anyone. Friends, let's not be the generation of Jesus' followers where God would say, I couldn't find anyone to stand in the gap on behalf of this generation. That we will put time aside to pray for, to seek the welfare, to put others first, to be good neighbors, to build good businesses, to be godly people, shoulder to shoulder with people who think very differently from us. Let it not be that this accusation could be leveled at the church in Kelowna in 2021, that God could not find anyone who was willing to put time aside, energy aside, money aside, focus aside, family life sometimes uh, geared towards that 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 be our calling. Let that be our calling. That we would stand in the gap. So this next 21 days, starting today, we have an opportunity to pray for our city, to pray for our country, to stand in the gap. 7 a.m. in the morning and 7 p.m. at night, you can join together each day and pray. And pray for our city. Pray. What is your three things that you are specifically praying for? This is a a wildly simple way of contributing and seeing change in our culture, in our world, in this worldview that is so opposite to Christianity. Rather than spending so much time protesting loudly, maybe we should spend that same amount of time praying loudly. That our lobbying would become more effective because of the spiritual focus that is being put behind it. That we wouldn't be seen just as angry, bitter, vehement Christians who hate others. But we'd be seen as loving Jesus followers who are, yes, exiles and strangers. But willing to set time aside to pray and seek the welfare of our city. But why? So as I come to a close, why do this? Where is the motivation to do this? Why not just run and hide? Why not just segregate? Why not create our subcultures and put our crash helmets on and hope that this passes soon? Why is God calling us to lean in? Because friends, it's very simple. And you're going to see it all the way through Daniel. We are on the winning side. Even in chapter 1 of Daniel, right at the end, you're going to see that Daniel outlives the Babylonian civilization. 66 years. 66 years, there's a new ruler in town. That Babylon has been replaced. Why? Because God is in control. God is on the winning side. He is the winning side. He is not being beaten back and he is not losing. Regardless of how dark our civilization might be, we serve a God who is in control. Because all through this scripture, you will find, I have sent you into exile. But seek the that I have sent you into exile. Do you see that? Do you see that perhaps it's part of God's plan that we be exiles and strangers? That it is actually part of his sovereign plan? Because right in the beginning of Daniel, 
Daniel, and you know, there is some question over whether Daniel wrote Daniel, but a lot of scholars do believe, and the tone of it seems to be that case. Daniel is saying something really profound right at the beginning. Why live differently? Why live shoulder to shoulder? Why pray? Why seek the welfare? Why live not segregated but, and also not assimilated? Because the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God is in control. That you can find in Isaiah 39 this reference to God actually. It's part of his plan that the people of God would be sent into exile. And we could spend a lot of time as to why. And Israel made a lot of mistakes. And and certainly this was just God in his patience and mercy and grace continually forgiving. Continually forgiving until eventually he says, Some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood will be born to you, will be taken away. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This was referenced years before it actually happened. God knew. God knew. This is a horrible time, but it's not random. Friends, 2021 in many ways is a horrible time, but it is not random. It is not outside of the control of our God. And to suggest that God somehow is hands off, it means that why are we praying? Because if we believe in a God who's not in control, why are we asking a God who's not in control to do stuff that he's not in control of? He is in control. And God starts with God is in control despite, sorry, Daniel starts with God is in control despite what it might look like. So be assured, nations, kings, queens, leaders, presidents, prime ministers, and cultures rise and they fall. They plunder, civilizations destroy, cultures change, they create post-Christian thinking, but God is in control. And as Larry Osborne put it in his excellent book, he says this, God is bigger than Babylon. God is in control of who is in control. I want you to remember that this week. God is in control of who is in control. God is in control of who is in control. And we might wonder how and why things are happening, but be assured we are part of a big plan. And it gives us motivation to live differently. It gives us motivation to be Jesus followers, even when it seems dark. Daniel has a deep, deep trust in the sovereignty of God. It's the foundation of everything that he does. It's the foundation of him following the instructions from Jeremiah. He finds freedom in it because he knows that God's promise is sure. He knows that the end is far better. And we need to not lose sight of God's ultimate plan. So in finishing, and this is far more than a refrigerator scripture. You'll know what I mean when I read it. We love to take this scripture, and this is a great classic scripture on the back of uh, graduating uh, class in their, in their yearbooks. But it, it's actually linked to exile. I want you to remember that. For thus says the Lord. This is Jeremiah. So we've just come from Seek the Welfare. And he's saying, look, this is the reason why. For thus says the Lord. For thus says the Lord. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring, back, bring you back to this place, Jerusalem, the kingdom. For I know the plans I have for you. There it is. Refrigerator scripture. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and that's good. Put it on your refrigerators. But just know it is nestled in the middle of extreme exile. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. 
Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. What wonderful promises. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This gives us hope. It gives us hope. It gives us hope for the future. Because if we think it's all in our control, then that is hopeless. Because we prove over and over and over we cannot fix ourselves. But this gives us hope for the future because it's in the hands of King Jesus. That he who gave up everything to come and live a life that we cannot hope to live in all his purity and perfection and love and mercy and grace. And then took the death and by dying forgiving us of our sin and our shame, he gave us a future. He gave us a hope He gave us something to anchor into that is sure and strong. That is our future, friend. And I hope and pray that is your future, that you have come into a place where you believe in King Jesus and you have submitted to him and you have said, I cannot do this by myself. I I can't build these Tower of Babels. It's not working for me. That my own self-expression and my own self-view and my own self-happiness is not working for me. I need help. And as you cry out to him and seek his forgiveness for the way that we make kings and queens of our own lives, that he graciously and lovingly will forgive you and give you a hope and a future that you will prosper. You will prosper. If not in this life, for sure in eternity. And that knowledge and that promise keeps you going, that you have a calling, you have a hope, you have a future, you have a king, and his name is Jesus, not your Nebuchadnezzar, and it's the kingdom of heaven that you are a citizen citizen of if you believe in him, not a citizen of Babylon. It is a sure, sure way to walk, difficult, but sure. So next week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at specifics. What practicalities? We're going to look at the next part of chapter 1. And we're going to look at uh, you know, the whole thing about the diet and the, the wine. And you know, So if you like wine and you like food, then come back next week and have a listen. But we're going to see how these have particular connections to us. That Daniel, as you'll read in the first few words of this next section, Daniel, I love these words, devoted himself. He devoted. He was devoted to the way of King Jesus, to God, not King Nebuchadnezzar. So how does that connect to our daily habits? That's what we're going to look at next week. But for this week, get involved in 21 days of prayer. Pray, stand in the gap of our city and of our country. I pray a blessing upon you. I'm going to pray for you now. And if there's anything that you've heard this morning that you would like to know more about, or if you have any questions, or if you want to come uh, to know Jesus and you want some guidance in that, then please connect with us. Please connect and and you can fill out a form or you can connect in the chat right now. We want to see you come under a, a new citizenship where the God of real freedom is pouring into your life. That's our prayer. Let me pray for you. Dear Lord, just what an amazing book. That God, a book that's been written so long ago has such relevance to us in our lives because, Lord, it points to you, Jesus that you are the king, the true king, the all-powerful king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, he whom other kings, presidents, prime ministers will bow, will bow. 
And Lord, we are so grateful that you give us an invite to come and live as citizens and as children of your kingdom. But Lord, 